So what does it take to make your first million, to scale a business, or to get your first high street listing? I'm Oliver Bruce, founder and entrepreneur myself, and I ask industry leaders and entrepreneurs on my award-winning podcast, Success is in the Mind, exactly that. From high-growth startups to scale-ups and businesses about to exit, I am joined weekly by the founders of businesses like Octopus Energy, Genies, Thursday Dating, Habito, Cano Water and Hera, as well as many more. From sportswear to tech, energy to consumables, hear it here firsthand from those entrepreneurs innovating and disrupting. Join me every Wednesday from 8am. This is another big thing I've really disliked about podcasts with startup founders. They glorify the hustle culture. I hate hustle culture and everything on LinkedIn. (laughs) Someone had said to me some great advice of, ask someone for um, advice and they'll give you money. Ask them for money and they'll give you advice. Thank you so much to our headline sponsors for the year capsule cover. Capsule Cover, a specialist insurance partner to growth businesses, supports some of the UK's most innovative and ambitious companies. Sponsoring each and every one of our podcasts, we're on a journey with Capsule, and so should you be. If you're a scale-up or an ambitious, high-growth business, check out how Capsule Cover can help you with bespoke insurance solutions. Inquire via CapsuleCover.com and quote Success22. On today's episode of Successes in the Mind, we've student lettings entrepreneur Hannah Shapat. Having been voted the university president by over 800 fellow students while studying at the University of Bristol, Hannah's campaign winning tagline was Don't be a twat, vote Shapat. This competitive streak, however, didn't stop there. Winning multiple grants and awards to get Hyber off the ground, Hannah and the Hyber team are currently in the midst of a funding round for some £600,000 that's taken just over two months to close. I ask Hannah, how is she so self-aware at the age of 25? How did she overcome the dyslexic label her school gave her to get A's and A stars? And how does she manage a social life outside of running a business? The Hyber team really are just getting started. Ladies and gentlemen, you heard it here first. Founder of Hyber, Hannah Shepard. So, Hannah, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. No, thank you. You're clearly a smart cookie, Hannah. You've got A's and you've got A stars. You interned in France. You travelled to Cape Town. You went to Australia, Jamaica, Kenya. You studied Lit and Lang at University of Bristol, and you came out in 2019 with the business quite busy. Why did you decide to work for yourself? I think I was just really, really fixated with the pain points that I was could see so clearly when I was a student at university. I think I've, I'd actually thought about what it was to be an entrepreneur in terms of the accounts, raising money, managing a tech team, building a sales team. I would have been super intimidated, but I was just really fixated on the problems and what I could clearly see as, as the solution and the gap in the market. I mean, taking it back to your sort of schooling career and before you decided to gallivant around the globe, I mean, you're dyslexic as well. So school can't have been that easy, but you seem to have overcome all of the connotations with the dyslexia and come out with, you know, A stars all round. Yeah, I mean, I, my first phase of schooling was, was quite tough. I remember just not being able to I'm like read a clock or like at all it was so far behind and some really basic basic tasks um which makes you lose a lot of confidence in yourself at quite a young age and I remember my mom changing um taking me out of my like you know my nursery school my primary school actually and the headmistress said you can move her out the school but she'll just take her problems with her Ooh, harsh what did you how did you react to that when they basically because I had the same they said you'd never get to university you're never gonna basically after school you're gonna have to you know crack on and figure it out yourself because we can't help you um sort of two fingers to them but how did you cope with that when they basically knocked you back well my mom did shield that from me I actually yeah, I found that out a couple a couple of years ago um but I definitely I knew that I, I was struggling and I knew I could see the frustration and some teachers around me um and I think, I mean, I kind of, I think I rebelled a bit growing up because my siblings were super sporty, very academic, did very well at school. So I'd never really wanted to try that hard. And it wasn't until sixth form that I really felt the kind of determination to kind of prove everyone wrong. So in sixth form, what were your sort of strengths and weaknesses then? What kind of pushed you to get to that level of, I want to go to university, I want to study Lit and Lang, uh, and I want to come out with the best degree possible? I think it was, so my schooling before had always been pretty pretty chilled as and everyone celebrated C's they were like you know I didn't even try any revise for that exam and that was really cool and then in my sixth form school it was you know you were lame if you got a B you had to get all those stars so that kind of change of attitude really helped. In terms of those that surrounded you were they as you would say some body or a type of person that you would aspire to have been like so that kind of pushed you pushed you on? 
Yeah, I'm I'm very competitive. <laughs> I'm very competitive when it comes to kind of board games or anything. So I think putting me in an environment when everyone was suddenly kind of competing, I think that really helped push me. As well as just, I finally realized that I obviously wanted to kind of keep up with my family. I'm eight years and 11 years younger than my siblings. So I always felt that in every kind of part of life that I needed to kind of keep up to the same same level as them and kind of pretend I was the same age. Do your family refuse to play Monopoly with you at Christmas? My family are all equally competitive. So <laughs> there's not one person that isn't going to really put their heart and soul into every part, every game. Because your family are quite successful. Your mum was an entrepreneur. She started a business. Granted, it didn't necessarily go the way it should have done. But your dad is also a highly successful lawyer. So you've been surrounded by success, um, I suppose, to use a term for the majority of your life. What do you class success as i think it i think yeah i think it's quite powerful growing up with kind of self-made parents is people who really like crafted their own their own future and they always kind of instilled those those values in us um so i think that was really motivating growing up and you can kind of see that in each of my siblings um my brother also really struggled with dyslexia and has gone on to be very successful himself doing consulting route and, and now also an entrepreneur and my sister-in-law is also an entrepreneur and my sister's gone into law. So, yeah, I just think it's created a, quite a, a motivating environment. But my parents are also quite hands off, which is quite funny. They um, they never really put that much pressure on us, but we just felt that pressure naturally. <laughs> so it's, I can see why it is competitive if they're all running businesses. Which one's got the biggest business? Well, my brother's only just quit his job to start his business, but it's going to be it's going to be big. And um, my sister-in-law, yeah, she's got her own uh, they live out in Kenya and she's got her own drinks, um, it's kind of introducing cider to the Kenyan market and it's doing very well. Um, but obviously, Hybers don't uh, ex- I mean, it's Hybers brilliant, exactly. It's, it's such a good idea. But in terms of obviously going into the world of entrepreneurialism, you were going to go through grad schemes at university. You were going to work for these blue chip businesses, Deloitte and such like, but you kind of ducked out at the last minute. Why was that? It was definitely not the environment for me to excel. Um the way I'm, I've just really, really struggled with all the kind of um, application process processes. I got to the final stage um, at EY, and I just was everyone in the room just did not fit my kind of personality type. And I remember just <laughs> looking around, and I would feel like I would have lost quite a lot of confidence going through that process. I'd lost a bit of my soul in the application applications. I remember just having a breakdown after every interview. It just really didn't suit me the way that they kind of tackled problems and the work. Um, so I very quickly decided that that was not going to be the route for me. That's quite a hard decision. How did your, I suppose, parents and family take it when you kind of went, look, guys, I'm not going to work for this big blue chip EY. I'm actually going to try and figure it out on my own. Was there support around you? Well, I think there was always a bit of doubt whether I would get up, fully get into consultancy <laughs> programs because my maths is not, the dyslexia really comes into play when it comes to, comes to my maths skills. So it would have been a real a real uphill battle for me. Um, but no, again, I, I think I just became really fixated with this problem that I saw at university, kind of with, with students, landlords and letting agents. And everything I spoke about was was around that. So I think it just seemed quite like a natural step. Um, and my, my, my parents kind of supported, supported me on that. Because at university, you didn't just study Lytton Lang, but you also became the president and had control over £35,000. That's quite dangerous for a student to have control over that, such, that, that, that lump of money. What was that for? So when I was um, in my kind of first few weeks of university, I started a campaign that said, don't be a twat, vote Chapat. <laughs> and um, yeah, I've got, was elected kind of president of the halls and events uh, rep as well. And I think that was kind of my first time of organizing a body of students and seeing the kind of power you can you can have over a whole a whole group of of, you know, consumers at their first point of their journey. And later on, when I was running a few ambassador programs as team leader of ambassador, of something called Student High Streets and also within the Red Bull program. Um, I think, again, it was really interesting to see how brands could interact with student communities and how fun it was. It could be to kind of organize these kind of campaigns and and get a lot of attention. So we used to get um, different brands like Red Bull to sponsor our house parties and put on house parties with 200 people with free alcohol, free decorations. And everyone had to kind of sign up to the brand or like the brand on Instagram uh, to get into the party. And it was just such a clever way of interacting with with student communities. That's almost like NFTs before they were a thing. If you had to sign up on Instagram to get into the party, it's like buying a digital asset to 
open a door for you. But in terms of the collaboration with Red Bull, was that was that your idea to to bring that to fruition? Yeah. So we would just I would just send emails to different brands. Um, we actually got Student High Street to to uh, sponsor one of our parties as well. I would just say, you know, this is how many people will come at going to the parties of the age range. We you could get you know three hundred new customers. Um, if you give us, you know, 50 pounds for a bar tab and a few decorations, <laughs> why not? We'll get your logos around the place, get you some content. Perfect. I mean, because you, you corralled 800 students together to get voted in as president. I'm assuming, obviously, that had a massive impact on Hyber when you when you founded that because you had those, I suppose, connections and ability to do a bit of market research with your, I suppose, fellow students. But looking at when you were applying to do the grad scheme with EY, for instance, and the, the fact that that was so difficult... Did that kind of transpire into Hyber when you found it to try and simplify that model as much as possible to make it as accessible uh, to all? I think the kind of experience of doing all the little odd jobs and everything you do at university is all about building self-confidence. And I think everything I did kind of contributed to allowing me to have enough of the kind of self-belief to start Hyber. Um, but no, I think the kind of main frustration that maybe you want to launch Hyber was the fact that there was just a constant cycle of students every year that went through the same ordeal of having keyboard warrior disputes with landlords and agents. And I couldn't quite believe that no one was doing anything about it. Because you've got a business partner, haven't you, called Pablo? So Pablo was my, is still my best, was my best mate at uni. Um, and he was doing a medicine degree. So I very naively thought that we could start a business together, even though he was in his last year of uh, medicine. As you can imagine, after doing five years of uh, training, you don't quite want to ditch it all uh, to go and start a startup. So he, we parted ways quite early on. But okay, so he decided that it wasn't something he wanted to get involved with. But how did he help you with the idea of Hyber? Then, if he was in the last six months of uni, you said, "Right, Pablo, I've got an idea. We're going to come up with this business plan for Hyber. It's going to be for students and landlords." What did he say to that? So actually what happened is Pablo every year of living with different housemates would say, I can't believe that there isn't a platform that supports renters and helps students in the rental process. And he kept wanting to, because he didn't have the capacity to do anything himself because he was super busy. Every time he had a new housemate, he would bring that up. And then in his final year with me, he brought it up and I couldn't stop thinking about it. And we would stay up quite late at night every every um, kind of weekend just kind of talking about it. And after I graduated, I called him up and was like, Pablo, I'm actually going to go ahead and I really want to launch this. And he he really, really wanted to launch it with me. And it was just it was a really difficult decision for him to actually realize he didn't have the capacity. And it was quite a hard conversation for me to say, you know, listen, you, when you start a business with someone, you have to put in the same commitments. You have to put the same time um, and you have to have that same kind of work ethic uh, uh, kind of going towards the same project. And when you're being pulled in two different directions, it just doesn't work. And so if the for the. Oh, for our relationship more than anything, I, and we kind of had to set those boundaries. So you said, obviously, he, he parted ways from a co-founder point of view. Obviously, you're still you're still mates, and that's really important. But in terms of in terms of driving that forward on your own, I suppose, as a sole founder, was that quite difficult? Yeah, I think it, it definitely it definitely was. I remember. I think it's an interesting way to think about starting a business in phases. And phase one is pure kind of hustle. I used to spend all my time just scrolling through Facebook groups, matchmaking students with landlords. And I would find these students through all online communities. Um, and it was very lonely and so much time just literally going through messaging a million students, having a million phone calls with different students. <laughs> and if I look back at that phase, I, I don't think I could do that again. You edit very much. I'm very happy to be on kind of phase three. And when I kind of decided to bring on my first hire, it was when I was reaching that point of, I actually, I can't do this entirely alone anymore. I only really need someone, someone to kind of bounce ideas off all the time. When did you bring in your first hire then? Because founding it in 2019, you were hustling for phase one. Obviously, phase two, I'm assuming, is that higher. What point was that? So launching a business before COVID was a pretty interesting context. Um, so I became a limited company in November 2019. Um, by early summer 2020, I heard about the furlough scheme and what this interesting uh, platform called Work in Startups was doing was connecting furlough talent who were bored out of their mind and couldn't get paid by any companies with startups who needed support. So I had a whole team of five 
furloughed employee, well, they weren't really employees, um, support working for Hiber who were on the furlough scheme and they couldn't legally be paid. I obviously couldn't pay them. So I, it was my first time managing a team and it was a really good um, kind of month, month and a half uh, where I kind of got used to managing a team, used to delegating. Um, and then after that kind of ended, I worked with a few, Had a, there's a quite a few good resources out there where you can get externally funded interns. Um, so I used a few of these schemes and then I got my, decided after that point, I was ready for my first hire um, and he joined in end of October 2020. Okay, so what are the external bodies that, that fund interns then for people interested? So there's one scheme called Virtual Placements, Virtual Internships, and there's a few others I've used in the past. The university, Most universities has a SME internship fund that you can apply to and you can get a fully funded intern for 140 hours at minimum wage. Um, so obviously it's very important philosophy for us that we don't have free labour. So it's really great when you can't, afford to pay someone but you know they're being paid by an external program um so yes it's such it's such a good way to to first start learning how to manage people um and also just creating opportunity for young people and getting you know people who are your consumer students to into kind of work for the brand and <clears throat> and get their opinion on what you're building and, and in terms of when you started at university you said that there were lots of programs that helped you through the first phase i suppose in terms of starting the business again would you recommend doing it whilst at uni because you don't have as many overheads you don't have as much risk or is it something that you just would have done anyway irrespective of the point in your life if i could go back the one thing i would do is join the entrepreneurial society and innovation societies and go to so many more talks i didn't even know that was available to me and now I know this societies because I we work with them and it's just it's so cool you have so many really driven motivated young people who are going to be are going to be founders and I really lacked a founder network for so long um so I would have done that but I literally hats off to anyone that starts a business while studying or whilst doing a part-time job because it is all consuming and I don't know how you can do that. I put every hour and every bit of effort into starting Hyber and I, I wouldn't have had the capacity to be doing anything else alongside or having any other distractions. What sacrifice did you make? Because I'm assuming, you know, I started a business at university as well. You have to say no sometimes to going to the pub with mates, granted, fine. But there are other sacrifices. Did you have to, did you have to make, you know, uh, decisions that were hard? I graduated in 2019. I had, you know, a really great summer and I was just kind of thinking for Hyber, about Hyber the whole way through, putting together a really rough business model. And then when it came to kind of the end of summer, when a lot of friends were kind of doing applying for masters, kind of thinking through their next steps, I just kind of full on launched, sort of launched a very simple Squarespace website. It was super ugly super super basic sort of um cold calling landlords and got my first landlord on board within a kind of week and we're kind of revenue generating from from day one obviously very small amounts but we i just kind of immediately went into it um just wanting to kind of learn as much as as, as i could and i also didn't really know what i was doing so i just wanted to start somewhere because i mean your gap year which was you know those multiple different countries you mentioned at the top of the top of the show you know how did you build this whilst traveling around the world whilst doing internships whilst obviously figuring out what you wanted to do in life and trying to make a bit of money to be able to survive so in terms of the like the timeline i graduated from school i then took a gap year so my gap year was come kind of 3 4 years before hyber so that's when I kind of went around, um, had a ridiculous year of kind of planned to go to Australia and some money, worked in a marketing team of a law firm for two months and then went to on a ridiculous journey, um, went to India, went and worked in Jamaica and Kingston for two months, um, went go back to the UK, did some waitressing and then traveled all around. I went to Ghana, Tanzania and then Colombia, Peru, Bolivia, Brazil. So it was a very ridiculous year, all very spontaneously kind of planned. And I think, again, like if I see how that could have impacted what I did later on, it's, it gave me a lot of kind of independence and, and again, confidence that you can really just go out and do whatever you want to do on, on your own on your own terms. Um and obviously the kind of valuable experience of, of working in, in an office and in teams. Uh, and then I went to university for three years. Um, and then after I graduated, 
I then went full time on high birth. Fine, that does. I was trying to figure out how you crowbarred it all into that, <laughs> all into yeah. that twelve months. But that now makes absolute sense. And in terms of how you got it off the ground, you said that you obviously cold called a couple of landlords. You managed to make a sale early on. In terms of how you monetized the business in the early days, how did that work? It's quite a similar model to kind of what it is now, um, except we have kind of more revenue streams now. At the beginning, it was completely free service for students, learning exactly what students, their kind of pain points, their concerns, what makes them anxious around renting, um, giving them, guiding them through that process. And then for landlords, landlords would pay us um, to secure tenants in their properties. So tenant finding service to do contracts, background checks, and then any one-off service that they needed, like inventories, check-in, photography. Um, so that's kind of how it started in the early days. And in terms of how it's progressed over the last couple of years, then where are your other revenue streams coming in now? So one of our most popular services for students is a get out of uh, the tenancy. So especially with the current COVID climate, people decide that they want to go home or there's issues with housemates. Um, so what we do at Hyper is we can help you find a replacement t- tenant and then we'll redo the contract for your house so you can get out of paying that 11 months or 12 month contract. Um, and then we also have revenue streams, other revenue streams from referral commission, from working with kind of trusted partnerships for student services and landlord services and part of our kind of community perks and benefits for both sides. Um, and then also we started working with some universities and colleges who want us to look after their students. So they will pay us to kind of house their students and make sure that they're fully supported and get access to all the kind of guidance that they need. So it's really smart because when you first started, you kind of won every single award, it seems, under the sun. You kind of, you won five grand from the new enterprise. You won 10K from the Prince's Trust, 10K from Me 100. You know, was that kind of your seed capital to to get it off the ground? You didn't need to dilute equity because you were just sweeping these awards up. I just absolutely love a, love a kind of pitching opportunity and a competition. And I, I really viewed it every time as a way for me to double down on, on what was important and how people responded to what we were doing. And what was really great was just that everyone was super passionate about the problem we were solving. So that really helped us up win these kind of competitions. And then we won free office space for 12 months for the team, which was a mass. I didn't quite realize how great that was at the time because when I first won that, I only had two employees. But now when we have 11, it saves so much money. hundred, And they're central London offices, aren't they? You were in them yesterday. Yeah, in Moorgate. So how, so how did you win that? Because that's obviously a different competition to the, the three that I've just mentioned. But what was the competition around the offices then? This is quite funny. I had COVID really bad. I got COVID really badly, um, kind of at the beginning of summer. And I was, and I was, it was completely fine. I was just really horribly quite ill and I couldn't work for eight days and that was the first time I, I couldn't I didn't work on Hiber and I felt so guilty I was lying in bed unable to turn the lights on unable to really move which so much guilt that you know my team didn't have me and I, I hated it so when I was finally feeling better that weekend I just went through the internet to find any competitions available to entrepreneurs so I could have like a morale boost to the team and I could say you know I haven't completely wasted the week I've done something so I found really randomly this um, ONA property um, office brokerage Uh, they were doing this competition to give um, anyone with a, a passionate story the 12 month free office space and I poured my heart and soul into that application wow I mean that's incredible from your from your bed with COVID you were still winning awards have you um have you kind of gone back to work obviously fully fledged after COVID did your team sort of thank you for that did you feel guilty still when in the office you know you seem to have quite a lot of accountability for most uh people who would normally just go actually I'm ill just leave me alone yeah no I think I think with all of these competitions and we also won um funding from the Prince's Trust I mean, all of these competitions are just great morale boosts for, for also, I'm, I'm not going to lie, if they had mostly do them for myself, because as an entrepreneur, it's super lonely. You don't get a pat on the back. You don't get feedback. You don't know how you're doing. And there's, it's really hard to, I'm always comparing myself to the entrepreneurs who've been doing this for 30 years. So I have no benchmark of what, how I'm, if I'm doing well for two years in, et cetera. So any chance for a small win is just a real it really helps motivate me and kind of show me that I'm doing something something right and we're on the right track. In terms of when you say lonely, though, do you, you, you've you obviously got people around you, I'm assuming. What do you mean by by lonely? Is it because you're so focused on the business, you don't have time to socialise and speak to loved ones? I think the issue is, is that you when you're having a really kind of bad day or you have concerns, you can't speak to investors because 
that will probably panic them. You can't be <laughs> honest and speak to your team because they th- might think, oh God, the company's going under. Let me look for a new job. So, and you can try and speak to, to family and friends. Although I think my family and friends are pretty bored of me speaking about hyper. And no one, so you don't really have anyone that fully under, kind of understands what you're going for, going through. And um, recently I'm trying to make a more of an effort to, to meet other founders at a similar stage. And I've now got a few people on WhatsApp just to ping a message to you when you've got a concern. And that helps massively, but that's a real new development for me um, in the, kind of the last few weeks. Because otherwise, yeah, there's just, there's so many little things that you just like to speak to someone who's, who's been through or going through something similar. And that's the exact reason, Hannah, that we started this podcast is specifically so that we can speak to people like you and go, actually, everybody goes through these issues. You're not alone in doing this. Actually, don't worry, carry on. And I think it's really important to identify that because so many people, staff, family, whatever, think that when you start a business, you're already successful. You're already able to do what you want to do. And actually, you've got full control over your life. The fact of the matter is, you really don't have any control over your life because you're at the mercy of essentially the business, right? It controls everything you do. How do you compartmentalize and actually manage your life, your day, when things are going wrong, how do you get up, dust yourself down? I think one thing I'm trying to do um, is not be so affected by the highs and not be so affected by the lows. I think it's a real, it's really easy to just get ecstatic and just get, let your brain, you know, jump to you being, you know, the company being a million pound revenue generating, etc., unicorn level when something little, something goes well. And then when something goes bad, you expect that the worst and you let it really get you down. And it kind of hurts me physically when something goes wrong. And I think it's really about managing those and just trying to kind of have a constant level in the middle uh, just to kind of keep people on going. And I think I'm, I definitely feel myself getting better, and especially even from uh, the beginning of this year. I feel like I, I'm trying to, I'm much more kind of stable in my responses to things and also feel more stable in kind of the kind of company trajectory and where we, where we are, um, which is, which is great. You seem quite self-aware for someone that's, you know, only just started this business, you know, never done it before. How did you learn that skill? I think it's really important to be self-aware because I think especially when I mean I'm managing a team of 11 now and I've never really properly been in an office environment for more than you know two month internship so I think it's there's so much that you need to constantly question yourself of am I being rational is this affecting me before the right reasons you know what's the end goal here like how is this is this worth kind of bringing up and just constantly questioning yourself and making sure you're not reacting like, you know, at the, on, at the moment or emotionally, it has to be with kind of logic and always kind of checking in on how you're feeling and making sure that um, you're kind of focusing on, on the right things. So I think that's just a really important part of being a founder is being super self-aware so that you can be making the right decisions. Because most founders are incredibly passionate. You've already alluded to the fact that you, you dwell on the little things when they go badly wrong and you celebrate the successes. But, you know, how do you cope from, you know, when, when something does go wrong and you see red and you get angry and you go, right, actually, the world is totally against me. How do you take that step back and go, guys, it's OK, actually, we can sort this out tomorrow? I think having someone, you know, my brother is someone I can call um, although he sometimes has to block my calls. He's like, I don't have time for this. But I, I think having someone that you can call and just sometimes rant to is is super important. Even if they don't even listen, I, I find it really helps just to kind of say it out loud. Um, and then once you said it out loud, you can kind of rationalize it a lot easier and take some time, even if you want to go outside for a, for a quick bit of fresh air um, and then kind of come back and, and, and go back to the drawing board. I think one part of, I, I know a lot of founders say raising is, you know, the biggest kind of obstacle that you face. And it's really difficult because you, you can get some quite nasty, nasty remarks or it can really kind of um, upset your confidence. But I, I found it in a way super motivating because it made me angry. And when I felt angry, I felt more determination to be like, you know, fuck you. <laughs> and I really want to, I want to do so everything I can to make sure that you feel like you've really missed out on this opportunity. You, you, you are incredibly competitive, aren't you? And I mean, I'm assuming you were kind of, when going through the funding, you've obviously raised money. How easy was that to raise the initial seed? 
I hate hustle culture and everything on LinkedIn because as a, a founder that is super, you know, new to the scene and doesn't hasn't kind of grown up with many, although it sounds like my brother and his wife, it's their new developments. I really didn't know what to expect. So I gave myself a deadline of, oh, mate, I'll raise 600K in a month. That's what people do. So I drove myself massively insane in November, um, really lost the plot because, and I was so like so surprised when it got to the month that I hadn't quite hit the target. And then after speaking to a few more people and they say, oh, it can take six to nine months to get the money fully in the bank and everything sorted. It was a massive relief. And I just kind of thought, well, why, well, you know, why didn't I know that already? Why didn't I have the more realistic expectations for myself? Um, but in a way that with a, because I really set myself those difficult deadlines, it meant that I got it, I've got it done in a, in a kind of two, two and a half month period, um, which is important for me because it's so distracting and you really need to go back to the core of the business and, and not not let it take up too much of your time. So in terms of that 600,000 raise that, that you alluded to, you said you're going to get it done in four weeks. Talk to me about the process. How did you find the VCs or find the crowdfunders or find the, you know, the angels to to pump that money in? Was it an individual? So I went through my like network on, on LinkedIn and I found someone who worked at Octopus Ventures who I'd met. I actually don't think I'd ever met him, but I'd met one of his brothers before. And I reached out to him saying, oh, I'd please love to go for a coffee. Someone had said to me some great advice of, ask someone for um, advice and they'll give you money. Ask them for money and they'll give you advice. Oh, this is I, I said this the other week to our NEDs and it's so funny. I'm glad you said that. Thank you. Yeah, it's it's such a good one. So I, I, that's one of my, my tactic throughout the raise. So I asked him for, for a coffee and he was my first in with the angel scene in London. And he connected me to three or four investors, angel investors who all invested and connected me to two or three more angels. So it just kind of went like that. I just slowly tapping into into the network that exists that I didn't know about before. And then one of my breakthroughs was, um, again, I love a competition. And there was um, a pitch day at the Albright Network, which is a super cool kind of female space. Um, it's like a Soho house, but for female businesswomen. And it was a pitching day, a live pitching day. And although I pitched many times before, I'd actually never pitched in person before. So I was so nervous um but it went it went really well and um i got the the founder of the, um, the albright network uh, invested in hybrid and she's also connecting me to her network so it's just about i found it really useful just asking everyone for coffees putting yourselves out there and just asking either people will introduce you if, if they like you or just being a bit blunt and asking for introductions <laughs> rather than asking directly for the money but in terms of, so that 600k that you that you funded what was the split on that in terms of did each person put in a hundred thousand quid what was the equity and how did you kind of work out the value of the business having never done it before um very good question i think I first used looking at open rent and their kind of pre-seed round and to see what they raised at. They raised at kind of, I think it was like 2.8 million for their kind of first round and then 3 million pre-money valuation. Okay. And I went, that sounds about right. <laughs> um, based off, you know, what they were doing and what we're doing. So I kind of went with that. And I mean, you can do what's my sixth month. What am I be making in six months? Annualize that then times it by five. And I was like, that kind of adds up. I'm um, 3 million pre-money valuation. Um, and then in terms of with each angel, I had a 30K minimum ticket size. Again, I did a good Google, what sounded like a good a good um, minimum ticket. So you don't have to herd sheep as the love founders like to say on podcasts. Um, and then, yeah, it kind of ranged between each investor. So what was the kind of um, the maximum that you got from any one individual? And why do you think that they put more in than, than the other person? Um, one of my angels put in 150K and he just is a very high net worth individual, which makes it a lot easier. Um, and I managed to, again, so the one thing that super actually really helped me with this phrase is I managed to get myself into the BBC, the Times and the Evening Standard, talking about the raise. And that was just one of the most helpful things that could have happened because it meant that it kind of put me on the map a little bit more than it I, I has ever obviously been in. Um, and it meant it just gave us a bit more um, street credit. Um, so I had him, I had that, this investor reach out because of the press piece. And yeah, he just was really passionate. I think he was 
probably has heard a lot of tech um, companies pitch with some very complicated kind of AI news technology. And it's quite hard to properly grasp the problem they're solving because it's quite niche. So I think with the product, we know with our problem that we're solving, I've never pitched without someone saying, oh, I went through that experience or I had a cousin and nephew, et cetera, that went through that experience. So it's, it's so much more tangible than a lot of other really cool AI solutions. So, I mean, in terms of when you were pitching, though, a lot of people get to the stage of pitching and then they kind of bottle it because they feel they haven't got enough confidence, don't know enough about the idea, or frankly, they just get scared by the money. You know, you kind of seem to have a pretty good hit rate. How'd you gonna do it? I was driven by the sheer panic of I'm going to run out of money in a few months. <laughs> so I, I felt like I was, you know, a 40 year old. I couldn't sleep at night because I was worried about the finances and whether I could turn the lights on the next day. And I would constantly be checking the bank account. So I was really just driven with that. I need to get this money in the bank. So I think a lot of people I've spoken to spend a lot of time perfecting their pitch deck, perfecting their pitch, going over their financials. I started pitching and I didn't even have my proper kind of financial forecast in place. I had to quickly make one one night after when the investor said, we send it over to me in the next few hours. Oh, so I was pretty unprepared, but I just wanted to start the process um, and just get things going as I kind of have been throughout this kind of hybrid history is do something, get it going, learn as much as you can, and then you can improve as you go. And in terms of getting it going then, before you went to the VCs and the angels, how much was Hyber actually making? So we had an, our kind of the money, we revenue we generated. So we generated uh, 2.8 million GMV. So that's the money we've made generating sales for our landlords. And our revenue at the time when I was raising was around kind of 55, 60K. That's kind of what we've made. Okay, fine. So, and, and I'm assuming that's across the year, 55, 60,000 for the year to date at the point of raise? Um, well, when I was doing the raise, yes. that was, yeah, just over a year. Fine. So you'd obviously gone for that raise, valued it at three million. What did you spend the money on? Because, you know, £600,000 to be pumped into your business when you're turning over 50k is an astronomical amount. So I decide, decided to bring on a senior team. And again, this is why I felt the pressure. I decided to hire a senior team. So I had, you know, already at that point, I think I had, I went into the raise with 10 or 11 people on the team. Um because I knew that they would look at a 24-year-old kind of young female founder and they'd have a lot of questions about, can she hire a good team? Who has she got around her? I knew that would be what would be on people's minds. So I wanted to make sure that I had that kind of um, already um, kind of sorted. So I had, you know, xbooking.com, XEY, someone from letting Asian background, Oyo, a SoftBank-backed uh, startup. I had all of the names that investors want to hear to know that I know how to kind of manage and get a good team motivated and together to to, for, to all share the same uh, vision for Hyber. So I had I had a really good team in place. I'm only closing the rounds kind of next week. So the money is all in the bank. Um, we're nearly all in the bank and I'm closing around next week. And the money will be spent on employees' salaries and marketing. So it, it's the first time uh, only in December did I hire a full-time someone focusing on our marketing channels on on growth um before that it was we'd spent sub 4k on marketing so i we really had kind of grown organically and now it's all about you know what what channels work for us across the different cities to help us have that kind of scaling formula down uh, to allow us to go into kind of the key 30 uk cities so it's really incredible because if you haven't even closed the fund yet and we're obviously recording this a week prior to going out so at the point this goes out it may well be the day that you get the money in the bank your tip to obviously be a scale-up do you think you could take this internationally definitely a lot of our well, one thing that's really exciting that we're doing is because of covid a lot of um you know the build to rent the co-living scene they previously wouldn't uh, rent to students, but it's actually a good way to de-risk their portfolio because in times of economic crisis, students still have loans, they still rent. So we're getting a lot of encouraging, a lot of supplies that haven't typically rented to students to rent to students to, to solve that real undersupplied issue that so many universities have. So a lot of these portfolios already have properties, portfolios in other um, cities in Europe, all around the world so we can already start opening up to for third year abroads to help them as they go from UK accommodation to international accommodation and back to UK accommodation that will be our first step into kind of international expansion and then we have definitely will look into kind of the US market to see how that would work.
as of 2021, the, the market in the UK for student rentals, and correct me if I'm wrong here, you probably know it far better than I do, was about five billion quid. Now, when you're renting a student house at university, you've got government grants, university grants that are being given, or indeed loans who are being given to these students. It's a pretty fail-safe business model because there's always going to be cash around for the students, right? Exactly, exactly. And students are really easy tenants because they really don't expect much. They just want to make sure that <laughs> they're being they're getting they're getting a good they're getting responsive landlords when they have a concern and that there's kind of a roof over their head. They really don't demand as much as a professional renter. Um, so there's a lot of kind of negative uh, narrative around renting to students and this whole relationship between students and landlords. But if students feel supported and have the kind of education that they need to know their obligations and their rights, then they can have a really good tenancy uh, and they have kind of guaranteed money coming in from the student loans or any grants and also the security of a guarantor. You've touched upon the fact that you obviously now have joined these sort of entrepreneurial circles to kind of, you know, discuss and, you know, thrash out, I suppose, issues and such like. Do you have a mentor or anyone around you to kind of help steer and guide you into the right direction? So I think if I was going to do this again, this is something that I would probably have got a lot earlier. Um, but I've got, so the founder of the Albright Network, uh, Debbie Wasco is now my advisor and she's one of the angel investors as well. And I think it's just super important to have someone who's kind of been through and scaled a marketplace. So any business that's similar to yours um, and just having someone that you can go to and have a, a kind of an hour slot or two hour slot each month uh, in the diary that you know when it's going to be, you can prepare all the kind of questions and have that, you know, someone, a mentor that you can go to because I really did lack that. I, as I said, I, I had my brother, but my brother is incredibly busy. So it would be hard to kind of lock him lock him down for, for a, a big deep breath. Um, so I think, yes, yeah, it's, it's really, really important to have, a, to have a mentor. Do you ever speak to the team that you've hired? Obviously, now you've got 11 people underneath you. Do you have round tables, town halls? Do you have a, a team that you can entrust with almost confidential information? Or is it still very much just in Hannah's head? So we have a very kind of open, open culture um, where we debate and we discuss everything that's going on. Um, and we have we do have kind of a Friday presentation each week when we just discuss, we present something that we're passionate about and kind of share ideas, which I, I love. But I, I don't know, I, I think it's important to obviously raise um, issues and problem solve as a team if there's something wrong with a client or we have questions around a new product launch, etc. But I don't like to burden anyone with my own concerns. I'd rather keep everyone really motivated and driven because there's too many exciting things to focus on for me to just be a negative Nancy. <laughs> How do you stay focused though on, on the things that you do need to focus on? Because you've got so many ideas, it's evident. You've got a clear passion to grow and scale this, but I'm sure sooner or later something's going to pop into your head and you're going to want to do it, but it might not be the right thing to do. How do you make sure that you segregate things? I have a kind of notebook full of ideas for the future and I kind of <laughs> use Notion and, and different tools like that, Evernote, to kind of keep track of everything that I want to do and, and how I envision the kind of product looking in a year, two years time. And then we kind of have break, I have a clear kind of focus for the week or the two or the month where we have a week and a month focus so that it's breaking everything down and into really manageable bites. Um, so we know exactly what we're doing right now and then kind of how that fits into the bigger picture. And I think, of course, sometimes I get really excited and I, I feel like I'm going to distract the tech team with my big new idea. But I have to kind of you have to go back to the to your, your book about this week and this month and just focus on on the small steps to, to reach the target. Are you good at just working, you know, nine to five, so to speak? Or are you one of those guys that, that works 24 hours a day and on the weekends? This is another big thing I've really disliked about podcasts with startup founders. They glorify the hustle culture. I've, I'm a big fan of Guy Raz, how I built Guy this. Guy Raz is brilliant. I love him. Yeah, Brilliant guy. Um, but he, a lot of the founders that he interviews will talk about the early stages of their business. I slept under my desk. I, I lost all my relationships with loved ones and friends. And they kind of, you know, it's as if it's a celebration. It's a good thing. And that made me feel really insecure when I first started Hyper because I didn't have it in me to work every weekend. And I didn't want to. I, I knew I would, by now, I would lose, kind of fall out of love with what I'm doing. I really need the weekend to have those two days off where I don't think about Hyper. And then I come back on Monday and I'm really excited to, to go again. So I, I've, I've really struggled with that because I've obviously, sometimes I think, oh, 
it's not going to, I'm not going to succeed unless I actually start acting like them. But I'm, I kind of really want to disprove that narrative. I think, I think weekends as much as possible, not, you know, sometimes you might do a bit of work or a phone call, et cetera, but a few phone calls, but I don't want to sit down on my laptop on, on a Saturday and Sunday. And I'm assuming that that kind of gets pushed through the whole business. So your team, for instance, you'd say, look, guys, don't work on a, on a, on a weekend and try and clock off on time. hundred percent. Most of, most of the, my team clock off at, at 6 p.m. Um, sometimes people work later, but I really don't want to have that kind of, that kind of um, atmosphere. Um, obviously, I, I will work longer hours, but I have much bigger stake in the business. So it makes sense for me to, to work those hours. And especially early on when, when I couldn't pay people a competitive salary, I was very strict of you cannot work over hours because otherwise that salary per hour rate is <laughs> yeah. not acceptable. No, a pound okay. an hour, which is ethically and morally completely yeah. wrong. But going into salary, I suppose, Hannah, obviously you're kind of doing it completely differently to, as you say, the narrative that Guy Raz pulls in terms of people sleeping under a desk, working 26 hours a day and whatever else. But do you also then take a salary or do you have something that you reinvest and you just simply are bootstrapping your own life yourself? No, so I've I've taken a salary from from quite early on just because otherwise it's impossible to to live. And I think I just how I don't really know how that would work. So luckily I've, I've always kind of taken taken a, a salary again. I'm much I'm much lower paid than my team. Um but yeah, that obviously again that makes that makes sense for for where we are now. Um and yeah, and hopefully that's a kind of motivating factor as well to see that, you know, it's how much I believe and where we're, we're going and how valuable this company will be. And just looking at the when you get the investment, because I was speaking to the boys from Thursday, I don't know if you've seen the dating app in London, but they were on a couple of weeks ago and Matt was saying to me that he takes a proper salary from the business because his investors say you should do. Now, is that something that you put in front of your investors and go, look, actually, we need to, I need to be taking a salary from this business in the next six, 12 months? Or is it something that you kind of don't put into the figures to make it look a bit healthier. No, it's all in, in the figures. I um to be completely transparent, I don't mind being open about it. I was on 25k and after the raise I've gone up to 35k. Um and I I think that's like quite that's why I can 25k was a struggle living out in London yeah. paying rent. Yeah. So 35k just makes it a lot easier for me. Um, and my investors are fully on board with that. I don't think that's really asking for too much. No, it's not greedy, 100%. That's that's really, really interesting, actually. No one's actually mentioned their salary on this, and we've done 50-odd episodes. So thanks for, thanks for doing that. But in terms of who you aspire, or if there is indeed anyone you aspire to be like, Hannah, are there any entrepreneurs or public figures or individuals in your life that you kind of want to be like or get to or admire? Definitely. And now I'm going to have a complete mind, mind blank. blank. Yeah, but yeah. <laughs> her name is Kilgore, Marcia Kilgore. Okay, go on, enlighten me. Beauty, beauty Pie, Fit Flop, um, and then a other kind of soap beauty black brands. Marcia Kilgore, I think it's Marcia Kilgore. She is an amazing uh, Guy Raz podcast is when I first got introduced to her. She's a serial entrepreneur and she's just incredibly humble. And every time she's just fallen into a business because of a desire to create an amazing customer experience. And you know, her first business was because she uh, went for a facial and she came out the facial feeling really bad about herself. They made her feel really ugly and like she wasn't kind of sophisticated enough to kind of go through that process, et cetera. And she had a hugely successful kind of beauty brand and it went on from there. And she's just, just incredibly um, kind of human um, and, you wouldn't quite, I don't feel like if you had a conversation with her, you would really know that she was a founder. Whereas I think there's so many founders out there where the ego is next level and uh, they make it all about them when it really should be about, you know, the business, the customers and, and the problem you're solving and how you're making making the world a better place, as cliche as that is. Yeah, well, if you aspire to be like her, I mean, you've done pretty well because you are incredibly humble and very human, actually, and, and quite transparent, which is really refreshing. But looking at kind of inspiration for you personally, what inspires you to keep going? Obviously, you want to make the business as good as possible, but what specifically to you, Hannah? That's a really good question. I think what motivates me, number one, like first, firstly, is just, and first and foremost is, again, this gap in the market, we haven't filled it. You know, I can entirely see where Hyber needs to be and it, it's just not moving fast enough. It'll never move fast enough until we are there. So that is entirely what drives me as I know exactly what we need to do and what it needs to be. Obviously I can be proved wrong and I might learn from my customers they want something completely else and I'm happy to be, to learn that lesson. But 
I just know what I think the market for right now from for everything we're doing needs. And I want Hyber to be that and 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 to to launch, you know, worldwide and, and to succeed in that sense. Um and, and also I just feel a huge amount of kind of responsibility for my team, my investors, and and just everyone who's kind of like supported me so far. I really want to to do right by them, and I feel a huge amount of responsibility for that. A hundred percent. And looking at the way that it could diversify or grow, you obviously mentioned about going over to the US and overseas. But do you think Hybrid could come out of the student market and go into, say, professional lets, for instance, for businesses that are looking to pump C-suite individuals in locations for a long period of time? I think. I think potentially I think there's so much we can do within the student market. Like a lot of we currently work with a few guarantor um, replacement schemes and deposit replacement schemes that simply don't work for our market. It means that any student who don't come, doesn't come from privilege, doesn't come from wealthy background, really struggles to rent. Um, and so there's a lot I, I would like to do to bring these kind of um, features in house to make a create a better kind of a deposit replacement and guarantor replacement scheme. Um, so there's a lot of these product, these kind of products, uh, features we work with for third parties that I would like to improve and create a kind of student focused product. Uh, we could then white label and bring to the market. I think that would be kind of my my step one. There's so many things I would like to do within the student space. And then once we've accomplished that, then it makes sense to kind of follow the young grads on their journey, um, as you said. Do you, do you keep in touch with the guys that initially started it with you in terms of the students that obviously you let initially when you were starting the business properties too? Do they know how they've kind of revolutionized your life, the business, and and I suppose this brand and where it's going? I was so bad at tracking things when I first started. I literally, I really didn't have a place to store emails as uh, like very well or I didn't have this place to store much data um, on who was renting when I was a one-man band doing every part of the business so I really don't have that much information on on who exactly was renting in the early days um, but I, I hope at some point we can we can kind of work backtrack and, and find those early early um, customers um, to let them know that they've been part of, part of this journey. Part of this amazing journey, which is only really just beginning. But Hannah, what does success then look like to you? Not the business, what does success look like to you? Success looks like to me is just being really happy with the work I'm doing and how the current team is structured, uh, having a really motivated, happy team and like a happy customer. So we're really problem solving uh, for the student. I know that's around the business, but that is what success is, is for, for me is being super, super um, happy with where I'm working and, and what we're working on. And in terms of if I was a student, okay, and I wanted to rent a property through Hybrid, or indeed a landlord and wanting to list a property on Hybrid, where do I go? How do I do it? And, and what do I need to do to be able to get on it? So you would go on to www.hybrhyber.co.uk um, and you would contact one of the, um, either you could just go and go through the, the on the city of your choice and filter through different um, options to see what you're looking for or you can contact the customer service if you want to help finding a housemate and joining a house share or you can kind of just book a free one-on-one -on -one consultation to kind of talk through your criteria what you're looking for your budget and how that can fit into a um, finding your kind of dream home. Hannah I have loved speaking and thank you ever so much I genuinely think the business is brilliant and I'm really really looking forward to seeing how you guys grow. Thanks so much for having me. Thanks for listening. Join me next week, Wednesday at 8am on all podcast platforms where we'll be speaking to another leading entrepreneur. Show your support by subscribing as without you, this podcast wouldn't happen. Produced by Pinpoint Media and sponsored by Capsule Cover, this was a Success is in the Mind podcast. Take care.